victory that is ours. We're going to do something a little bit different today in terms of our song and the background of our song. We have followed a pattern of me sharing with you the people who wrote the songs and why they wrote them. But it's going to be a little bit different focus today because we have a very special song today that came about in a very special way. Uh, I believe it was William Cowper, maybe, who said, God works in mysterious ways as wonders to perform. Um, This song came about in a very, very unusual way. And so this morning, as we begin looking at our song, we're going to look not at the person who wrote it first, but the person who inspired it. In the year 1858, a great revival swept across the city of Philadelphia. It was publicly known as the work of God in Philadelphia. And one of the participating ministers, um, none was more powerful than the 29-year-old Episcopalian Dudley Ting. He was known as a bold and fearless preacher, uh, not afraid to, to tack on the topics that needed to be addressed. Uh, He had great influence on other spiritual leaders around him. His father was Reverend Stephen Ting, who was for many years the pastor of the large Episcopalian Church of the Epiphany in Philadelphia. After serving as his father's assistant for a time, Dudley succeeded his father as pastor. However, some of the more fashionable members of the congregation were not very happy with Reverend Dudley. They weren't happy with him because he had a very straightforward approach to doctrinal preaching. And they were surely not happy with him because he took a very strong stand against slavery. And so they wanted him out and he resigned. Uh, he founded a new church, the Church of the Covenant, and was used by God in a great fashion. In addition to his duties as pastor of the congregation, Ting began holding services, noonday services, at the downtown YMCA. And great crowds were beginning to form. Get this. On Tuesday, March 30th, 1858, over 5,000 men gathered in a mass meeting to hear Dudley Ting preach. He preached from Exodus 10.11. Go now ye that are men and serve the Lord. On that day over a thousand men responded by faith, committing their hearts and lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and his service. The sermon has often been termed one of the most successful sermons of the time. And during that sermon, Dudley Ting made this statement. I must tell my master's errand, and I would rather that his right arm, this right arm were amputated at the trunk than I should come short of my duty to you in delivering God's message. The very next week, while he was at a farm, he was watching a corn thrasher in operation. And he accidentally got his sleeve caught in the cogs. And the arm, his right arm, was lacerated severely. The main artery was severed. The median nerve was injured. 
Uh, they were able to stabilize him, but four days later, infection developed. As a result of shock and a great loss of blood, Dudley Ting died on April 19, 1858. At his deathbed, he was surrounded by friends and other ministers, and they asked him if he had any final statement to make. And he whispered, let us all stand up for Jesus. The next Sunday, Ting's close friend and fellow worker, the Reverend George Duffield, pastor of the Temple Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, preached his morning sermon as a tribute to his great friend. He chose as his text, Ephesians 6.14, Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. He closed his sermon by reading a poem of six stanzas that he had written, inspired, he told them, from the last words of his esteemed friend. Reverend Duffield, Sunday school superintendent, was so impressed by the verses, he had them printed up and distributed through the Sunday school. One of the, one of the copies made its way to the editor of a Baptist periodical who greatly was moved by the words and published them into pamphlets. Uh, prompting it to have wider circulation. Eventually, it found its way into the hymnals in the hearts of God's people across the world. Uh, George, George Duffield himself was born in Carlisle, Pennsylvania in 1818. He studied at Yale University and Union Theological Seminary. He received a Doctor of Divinity from Knox College for all of his accomplishments. Um, but one of the things that he's done that has probably touched more lives than anyone is write this great hymn that we've sung today, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. A powerful word, a powerful phrase, built not only on the word of God, but on the dying words of a man whose heart was completely sold out to do what God had called him to do. So we're going to take a look at more than just verse 14. Today we're going to be looking at Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. I ask, if you will, to stand as we hear the word of God together. A very powerful message from Paul that we desperately need today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind. Be alert 
and always keep on praying for all the saints. May God bless the reading of this word. You may be seated. Paul is writing to the Christians in and around Ephesus, a town that had known trouble because of the gospel. In the book of Acts, when we read about the when when the Christians in Ephesus truly, when people gave their lives to Christ, they were so moved, they started destroying all of their idols, which made the idol makers very angry. And they stirred up a riot. It became a very dark moment. And Paul was writing to them later, years later, he's in prison and he's telling them, you can have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can overcome the enemy in Jesus Christ. And I believe that is still true today. When the lady sang and all the songs we sung about victory today, folks, it's not wishful thinking. It's not a pipe dream. It's the reality of ours in Christ if we understand what he's doing. Now, how do we have victory? Well, I believe in our text there are several steps along the path to victory that we need to follow. So we're going to take a look at what those steps are And then hopefully and prayerfully, by the end of this all, we will be firmly committed to the truth that we need to stand up for Jesus. And our very first step, recognize the source of our strength. Recognize the source of our strength. The Apostle Paul was very clear here. He's not telling them, go out and do the best job you can and you'll get it done. He's making it very clear. Paul encouraged his readers to rely on the Lord for the victory in the battles ahead. Now the New English Bible translation of this really gets to the heart of Paul's message. It reads, finally then, find your strength in the Lord in His mighty power. Now, Paul did something that he does a lot. He strings together three different synonyms. He he has a way of packing his words. Three different synonyms, and they're all talking about strength and power from God. They happen to be the exact same words that he used in Ephesians 1, 19-20, where he was telling the Ephesians where the power came from, from God. And listen to what he had to say talking about God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul was saying the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to His followers to to give them victory in this life. And so he's saying... You have power available. Now the very first phrase, be strong in the Lord, that command be strong is actually in a passive voice. And it it quite literally means to be enabled. Uh, For God to, to give you a strength that can be yours that will make you able to do what you were called to do. He tacks on, be strong in the Lord, because he wants them to know beyond any shadow of doubt It's God who will do the strengthening. He's not telling you, screw up your courage, work real hard, believe, believe. You know, He's saying you're going to find your strength in the Lord. The second 
two words emphasize this. And that's why he gives all these different... He really wants to emphatically say where the strength comes from. Power is a word that is used in the New Testament only about supernatural power. It is never used for kings. It's not talking about the kind of power a Hercules would have. This is power that is supernatural. One place in the New Testament, Hebrews, the 12th, second uh, chapter, verse 14, describes Satan having a supernatural power to try to defeat the people of God. But everywhere else, this word is used. It is used for God. And it's a, it's a word for power that means active power. Power that is being exercised. Power that is accomplishing what it is meant to do. And then he uses the word might. The mighty power. And this is a passive word. It means power whether it is exercised or not. It's a power that God has inherently because it's part of His nature. It is a power that belongs to God and gives Him the authority to accomplish what He plans to do. He has the right He has the power, and it is God's power that will give you strength. So what is Paul trying to say? Only the power of God could defend and deliver his readers from the might, the evil, and the craft of the devil. He's letting them know, you can't do it. But he's letting them know they don't have to. And for us, This is as simply as I can put it, folks. We need to fully realize that the power of God is essential to our ability to achieve victory. It is absolutely imperative that we understand this. God's power is essential. Without it, we will fail. With the power of God available to us, We would be foolish to try it on our own. We would be absolutely foolish to think. I can go out there. Uh, I would ask for a show of hands, but I'm not going to do that. But sometimes we go through life and thinking, God, I really need you to take on the big stuff for me. I can handle the little things. And Paul is saying, you don't even need to be trying to handle the little things. You need to know that God is with you. And there is a crucial reality about human pride that you can see in a little toddler and a very old man. We don't like to admit we need help. I'll do it. I'll do it. God Almighty stands ready. Paul is saying, all of the power you need to be victorious in this walk with Christ is available from the hand of God. We need to understand that. And if we will rely upon the one who can help us, we will prevail. Paul Dawson, Pendleton, Oregon, wrote a, 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 once wrote about visiting the Grand Coulee Dam with his family. And as they visited, they noticed that coming to the, the visitor center, and they noticed it's dark. So they think, well, they must have tinted windows. But as they get closer, they realize there are no lights on in the building. 
they walk in and all of the displays are not working. Nothing's on. And somehow, on a sunny day, there's been a technical problem that has killed the power toward at the center. A technical difficulty of a place that sat only hundreds of feet from a hydroelectric dam. And he thought to himself, how could something be so close to that source of power and not be plugged in? Friends, we are the children of the living God. Join heirs with Jesus, the scripture calls us. More than conquerors, it says we can be. We are the children of God and he has promised us a power, a might, a strengthening that can grant us victory in the battles of life. So let's be sure that we are plugged in. Let's be sure that we are opened to the strengthening of God. That we get out of our minds that it is up to us to do all of the battle on our own. That's not true. It was never meant to be that way. Why is it so important that we acknowledge we need the power of God? Because of our step in, second step toward victory. Be honest about the strength of the enemy. Be honest about the strength of the enemy. John Stott made an observation that is true in war in general. He said, a thorough knowledge of the enemy and a healthy respect for his power, prowess are a necessary preliminary to victory in war. And then he drives it home for you and me. Similarly, if we underestimate our spiritual enemy, we shall see no need for God's armor. We shall go out to the battle unarmed with no weapons but our own puny strength and we shall be quickly and ignominiously defeated. That's the reality. Paul told his readers that the battle facing them was against much more than human powers. You need to understand it, Paul is telling them. You're not just fighting people. Now, there were silversmiths who started the riot. There were people involved. But Paul's saying it's not about, well, actually in the original text, he said it's not about blood and flesh. A little bit different than what you're used to hearing. But now, I do not believe that Paul was saying people are not responsible for when they decide to attack the purpose and call of God. He's not saying that people are never involved in the struggles that we have in life. They are. But what he's saying here, everything about them, the hatred, the envy, the strife, the jealousy, the lust, the pride, the evil, all the different things, that drive people to do ungodly things, have their source, their strength, from the one whose sole purpose in this world is destruction. It's not just people we're dealing with, but the force behind those decisions, the force behind those actions. Humans were essentially pawns in the hands of a diabolical, and the enemy has marshaled 
serious troops to wage war on the people of God. The reality is, he says, our battle is against real but unseen spiritual forces. And he names various ways of talking about them. But all those different ways amount to one thing. No matter how you think about them, this is the enemy we face. Now with apologies to Frank Peretti fans, and I did read this present darkness, the scripture to try and find an absolute distinctive definition for each of these groups is problematic. Because the Bible does not define them. So when we start trying to to micromanage these words, we don't really get any help from Scripture itself. Clear definitions simply aren't given. Now, Harold Horner notes, uh, the first two, rulers and authorities, are mentioned two other times in the book. Actually, uh, three times in all. uh, 2-2, 4-18, 5-8. But it doesn't define the spiritual, he, Paul adds, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil. And basically, what I want you to see, we cannot pro- precisely define what these enemies are. But we understand their purpose. And we understand what they're doing. They are spiritual evil enemies out to try to destroy the cause of Christ. They're out to cause you and me difficulty. They're out to try to make Christians put them in an impossible situation. That spiritual host in heavenly places probably is a great summary for it all. Because it's saying there's an army out there. Whenever you see God called in Scripture the Lord of hosts, it means the God of the armies. And there is an army waging war against the Christians. So he's letting them know there is a spiritual battle going on here. But before we freak out and before we start thinking we are in serious trouble, there is a word of hope that you might miss. And that word of hope is the phrase in heavenly realms. Now, what does that mean? Basically, it's in the unseen world. The spiritual world. And so he's saying, we have enemies we can't see. Isn't that scary to think about? But I want you to hear, because this phrase is used elsewhere in Ephesians. I've already read one of the verses. I'm going to read it again. Ephesians 1.20 which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. In one three, praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 3.10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Do you get this? These enemies are in a spiritual realm. 
but Christ is ultimately Lord of that realm and all existence. He will defeat those who deem to thwart His purposes. They are spiritual. They're dwelling where we cannot openly see them. That's scary. But as someone has noted, Ralph Martin has said, in spite of the tremendous evil in which these demonic powers are capable in their attempt to destroy the church, the assurance is given because these powers are competing with God. Folks, the church is already victorious. Paul tells the church at Ephesus, we have already been seated in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realms. Now, we can't see that, obviously. But we are God's church. We are His people. We belong to Him. And He says that He's going to use the church to bring the power of God into a reality even within the heavenly realms, made manifest through the church to rulers and powers in the heavenly realms. In other words, God is going to use you and me as His instruments to defeat the enemy. So, the promise is given to the Ephesians. If you avail yourselves to the power of God, these enemies are not unstoppable. They are not unbeatable boogeymen of campfires and myth. They are not unbeatable horror movie creatures. They're already defeated. A couple of weeks ago I shared with you that when Christ was on the cross, He already defeated the enemy. D-Day has happened. There will be skirmishes. Paul says, we struggle against, King James, we wrestle. And he's not changing the the image here. He's talking about hand-to-hand combat. There will be real battles. But the war is won. And even if the world can do the absolute worst it can to us, if it kills us, Christ will snatch victory from death and bring us to His side. The Ephesians could know true victory. Now we need to understand if we refuse to acknowledge the spiritual nature of this warfare, we will suffer defeat. We need to know. It's not just your loud neighbor that's driving you crazy with all the horrible things they do. There's something else going on here. And Paul tells us while he doesn't define specifically what each rank is, He does say they are powerful, hence we need the power of God. They are cunning. The devil and his schemes, his trickiness, King James, the wiles of the devil, they are wicked. The reality is, we cannot defeat these enemies in our own power. But the greater reality is we don't have to. The Lord will bring us victory. As bad and as crazy as this world gets, and it does, we can ultimately have victory. Paul assures us, as well as he did the Ephesians, after we have done everything, in other words, after you have accomplished all that your duty as a Christian soldier soldier requires, after you have 
availed the power of God after you've taken up the armor, in the end, you will stand. So let us rejoice that our God is greater than our foes. We need to understand that. We need to learn and heed God's call to prepare for battle. And then, as we open ourselves up to Him, we ask Him for the strength, we ask Him for the power we need, then we will begin to see God move through the strength, power, might He gives us. Again, why is this important? Because it leads us to how this strength, power, and might comes. Our final step. It's not just a simply stated imperative. Folks, our final step, we must take up the armor of God. And when he uses that phrase, take up the armor, earlier he said put on the armor, now he says take it up. The image is, your armor is laid out in front of you. Now you need to get it and put it on. And Paul, in his great leading by the Holy Spirit gives us detail here. Paul described the full armor of God available to his readers. When we were singing the song, you saw that word, weird word panoply. That means full armor. The panoply is every weapon, every defense thing that you've got to put on to keep you safe. The full armor of God is available now, it's very possible that Paul was chained to a Roman soldier as he wrote about this. And that Roman soldier becomes a living object lesson. And Paul develops this metaphor, this powerful metaphor. So we're going to look at the armament. And I'm only just going to give you a brief description of what the pieces of the armor are. We're going to look more important about what do they mean. So Paul says, take up the full armor of God. And he begins by saying, make sure that you have the belt of truth about you. Now that belt, its basic purpose was kind of hold everything together. It helped the breastplate keep in place. It was where he would hang his weapons. And he says, you need to have the belt of truth on. Now this is not just the truth of the gospel. Although I believe that is at least suggested. I believe what Paul is talking about here is the truth, the integrity that belongs to a child of God who is convinced God is Lord, Christ is Lord, I will serve Him, I will stand for Him, I will be who God wants me to be. Paul is saying, let your words and your actions come together. And when you have truth, when you have Christian integrity that is empowered by God, then you're going to be a mighty soldier. Our integrity given by God to give us strength. And then the breastplate of righteousness. And obviously a breastplate is there to protect the major organs of the body. But here I do not believe this is talking about the righteousness that was given when we were saved. Paul says, when we became Christ, God made us righteous. We were sanctified at that point. But you have heard me say, it's proper to say that I have been saved. 
It's properly to say, I am being saved. That idea of sanctification, I'm becoming more and more like Jesus as He works His life, life in me. This is the righteousness. The sanctification. Let what God is doing in your life through Christ to make you what you ought to be protect your heart from the enemy. So that you're not wafting between two different ideas. You're standing firm because the righteousness of Christ has got hold of you. He's moving in you. He's changing you. Let that righteousness guide you as it is empowered by God. Because folks, we don't make ourselves righteous. We don't make ourselves like Jesus. Christ does that. The Spirit of God does that. And then, the gospel of peace. Now this is, it's a little awkward to try to get all of this up here on the slide for you. So, have your feet shod ready, prepared by the gospel of peace. Now, while we are to be proclaimers of the gospel, and that is always contained in this idea of gospel as we tell it, I don't think that's the primary focus here. A Roman soldier, Angel asked about cleats on a football uniform. Roman soldier sandals had studs in them. And they have one purpose. Dig in. So I'm not going to be easily knocked off my feet. Paul says, what we have through the gospel is preparedness. We are ready to stand for Christ. We know that Christ has saved us. We know that we belong to Him. And our lives are firmly planted in the gospel. It gives us the strength we need to not waver, to not be knocked off our feet. This is what God is wanting to do in us. Be ready. Be ready for the battle. And know that it is the good news of Jesus Christ that will allow you to stand. And then, he talks about the shield of faith. Angel correctly described the shield. If you've watched gladiator movies and their little round shields, this isn't the shield. It's a particular type of shield that was about four feet high that you could actually get behind and hide. And it was not just metal. It had wood on it, it had leather on it for a very specific reason. In the ancient world, archers often dipped their arrows into pitch, basically tar, set them on fire and let them fly. And a Roman shield, when that arrow hit the shield, instead of bouncing off, it would be embedded in the shield and the flame would be put out. Now, if the soldier freaks out and throws his shield away, he's dead. So you keep that shield up. And it is the shield of faith. And I believe that there are two ideas here. I believe he's talking about our faith in God. But I also believe he's talking about our faithfulness to God. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 5, 8, 9. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm 
in the faith. That's how we have victory. And the fiery darts of the enemy will not be able to defeat us. Now he then goes on to talk about the helmet of salvation. Now in the letter of Ephesians, whenever Paul talks about the Ephesians and salvation, he's talking about an accomplished fact. Ephesians 2.5 It is by grace that you have been saved. So he's not saying, put on the helmet of salvation so you'll get saved. He's talking to people who already know the Lord. But he's telling you the, the assurance that God brings into the life of the believer. I am his child. I belong to him. The helmet protects the mind. It protects what we think and hear. And when the enemy starts whispering, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person here who has heard the whisper, a real Christian wouldn't act like you. You're a phony. When I know that my salvation is based on the grace of God, and by faith I have appropriated it, my heart, my mind protected, I have assurance, I believe, I know God is here. So remember that you are His child. Remember that you have been saved. Remember He's still in the process of making you what you ought to be. And you can stand. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only offensive weapon the believer had available. And there are two passages of Scripture that are important. One has already been mentioned, Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Word of God is our strength because it can cut through all of the garbage that we allow in our lives. And it can get the heart of who we are and who we ought to be. But then, and I'm only going to use one example because that's all I need right now. Jesus is in the wilderness. After his baptism, the Word of God says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness so that he would be tested. And the enemy comes. Jesus has been fasting a long time. Turn that rock into bread. And Jesus said, Matthew 4, 4, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus didn't say in any of the temptations, I'm the Son of God, leave me alone. Each temptation, He goes to the Word. And folks, if the Savior of the world needed the Word to fight temptation? Amen. So do we. Our kids in Awana challenge us as adults by hiding their word in the, the, God's Word in their hearts. They have a weapon of God to be used. We need to understand the Word of God gives us strength. I've, I've quoted 1 Corinthians 10.13 a lot to you through the years. The scripture says, there's no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. I believe the number one escape route in temptation is the Word of God. 
instead of looking for an external exit sign, we need to let the Word of God flow up for manus and remind us of His truth and what we are meant to be. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. And then Paul, he does not call it a weapon. But Paul says, with all of this, when you put it all on, bathe it in prayer. All different kinds of prayer. Prayer in the Spirit, which means under His influence and under His assistance. In Romans, the 8th chapter, Paul says, when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God intercedes for us with, with groans and utterings that are too deep to be spoken. So we pray. And we are alert. And we pray for all other believers. Folks, this is the key. This is where the strength comes into our lives. This is where the power is taken up. This is where we have victory. And even though the armor comes from God, we still have to put it on. Don't let yourself think, well, God's going to give me all I need, so I just need to sit back and let Him do it. This is very much like the children of Israel going into Canaan. They still had to fight, didn't they? They still had a battle to win. We have a battle. Our text does not say, sit around passively and wait for God to do something. He's telling us, I've already given you what you need. Now you need to pick it up and put it on. Folks, football player. Now, what would happen in his house if from this moment on until the time he graduated, Evan never took off his uniform? Do you think he'd be living outside? We can't put the armor on one time. I believe this is something we do every day. We must take them up. We must consciously decide to give God our hearts so that we can use what God has given us. In other words, we need to be actively involved in this battle. Instead of waiting, we need to be prepared. So let us be willing to become engaged in the battles ahead. We must not got, we, we cannot give in to fear. I believe one of the greatest tools the enemy uses in this day and age is fear. He scares us. And we look at the events of the world and we begin to wring our hands and we think, oh my gosh, doom is certain. Nothing can change. And we give in. And we become... We want to be safe. Have you ever thought how wonderful it would be if you could only be around Christians all of your life? When I say that, Christians who actually know the Lord and act like it, doesn't that sound great? Kind of like Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let's build some tabernacles! God says we can't. We can't look for a safety zone. If we never engage the world 
who's going to tell them about Christ? We can't. We need to rise up, stand up for Jesus, and say, I'm ready to go into the battle. I'm ready to face what's ahead of me because I have opened my heart to God. I have prayed for His strength. I've asked Him to help me put the armor on. I want to live for Him. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger be never wanting there. We cannot give in to fear. Edward McManus preached a sermon to his congregation, seizing your divine moment. And in it, he told them a story. He said, one summer, Aaron went to, uh, to camp. He was just a little guy, and I was kind of glad because it was a church camp. I figured he wasn't going to hear all those ghost stories, because ghost stories can really cause a kid to have nightmares. And he said, but, unfortunately, since it was a Christian camp, and they didn't tell ghost stories, because we don't believe in ghosts, they told demon and Satan stories. So when Aaron got home, he was terrified. And that night when he was going to bed, he said, Dad, don't turn off the light. He said, I was about to leave. No, Daddy, could you stay with, here with me? Daddy, I'm afraid. They told all these stories about demons. I mean, I said, I wish I could tell him they're not real. And then Aaron said, Daddy, Daddy, would you pray for me that I would be safe? I could feel it. I could feel warm, blanket Christianity beginning to wrap around him. A life of safety. 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 This may sound cruel to you, but it's very wise. He told his son, Aaron, I will not pray for you to be saved. I will pray that God will make you dangerous, so dangerous that demons will flee when you enter the room. He goes, all right. But pray I would be really, really dangerous, Daddy. Then McManus asked, I understand. When Jesus prayed that the Lord keep us safe from the enemy. He's praying, do not let him destroy them. When we pray, Lord, make us safe, it's, Lord, don't let us have any problems. McManus asked, have you come, his congregation, have you come to that place in your life, where you stop asking God to give you a safe life and to make you a dangerous follower of Jesus Christ. Life is a war zone, whether we want it to be or not. It's a battle zone. But we can be dangerous to our enemy. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I know you've heard me say this before. A gate never attacks anybody. But that's the way we've looked at it. Safe in the church, the enemy can't get us. This is talking about the church militant, the church on the move. We can be dangerous if we recognize our source of strength in God, if we take seriously the strength of our enemy, and if we put on the armor of God He has provided for. This morning, will you ask God in His strength to enable you to accomplish all that my duty 
requires as your child, as a soldier in this fray. Will you pray? Lord, help me to stand up for Jesus.